Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. As we've been presenting the last three weeks, in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, Asian Americans have been facing rising incidents of physical and verbal assault. To be clear, Asian people were among the early sea voyagers to the Americas in the 1500s. But after centuries of presence on these shores, many Americans of Asian descent are still treated as foreigners here. This last episode in the On Asian America series comes to us from Northwest Public Broadcasting. It explores the legacy of violence toward and othering of Asian Americans in the rural Northwest and offers solutions for building empathy allyship, and spaces of inclusion. On Asian America is a collaboration between Humanities Washington, KUOW Public Radio, Spokane Public Radio, and Northwest Public Broadcasting. The goal of the series is to amplify Asian voices and spark an ongoing dialogue about the experiences and contributions of Asian communities in our state. You can submit feedback and questions about this episode by emailing engage at KUOW.org or leaving a voicemail at 206-221-1926. You can also text the word feedback to 206-926-9955. This is On Asian America. I'm Connor Henriksen. A rash of anti-Asian assaults and other incidents committed all across the United States are shaking those of Asian descent. In this episode, we bring you stories from the Northwest about how people and their communities are affected. Correspondent Anna King talked with two best friends in the Tri-Cities. The three of us sat down outside on a sunny May morning to talk about this past year. I am Danielle Kleiss. I'm 36 years old. All of the stereotyping, hey, you're a bad driver, do your parents own a dry cleaners, do all Asians are lumped into this one category or assuming things about me because of the way that I look. I am Misty Myers and I am 40 years old. I have had experience of Asian hate growing up and being categorized you know, and targeted based off of once people know that I am of Japanese descent, that that has been used against me. And I have been targeted um, because of that. And when I say attacks, I don't necessarily mean just physical. I mean the verbal attacks as well. One of the very instances, and I don't even think my family or my husband knows this story, but I was I was probably very young in my college career, uh, freshman, maybe a sophomore. So I was in the corner and we were, I think, joking because I was the only Asian there and ha ha ha, we were making these funny jokes. Somebody released, and I can't remember those details of that I was Japanese. And this guy who I didn't know that we were playing this game with right across from me started verbally attacking me and saying, you know what, my grandpa shot your people in the war. 
and he would hate you. And if I brought you home, he would kill you. And nobody did anything. So one, this kid attacked me. And then two, nobody in the room came to my defense. Here's Danielle again. I think I've been pretty lucky and, and blessed in my life where I haven't been around that. But I've had things that have made me feel bad about myself. But I guess it's in my own giving people a benefit of the doubt where I don't think that they're being mean. When I was in college, I remember getting my first C and my professor who um, was, it was a sociology class. He looked at me and he goes, but you're Asian. You shouldn't get C's. And we like laughed about it. But then I felt really bad about myself. And here's Misty again. We weren't still in Packwood actually when the pandemic hit. Just to see my husband kind of process through what I've been experiencing and learning over the last year. And he really didn't react positively to my cautiousness about going out by myself and things like that. He, he's always known me to be this very independent person who could care less where I am and have, you know. But because of what was happening in the media and the, the China virus and, you know, people being verbally or physically attacked on the street because they were Asian and being told to go back to their country. I was, I was really scared. Misty and Danielle say they don't define themselves as Asian Americans first, but as human beings. And that's how they wish the rest of us would see them. I'm Anna King. Those experiences are echoed by Asian Americans in every corner of the Northwest, and it's nothing new. These biases and hatred go back decades, and WPB's Sue Ann Ramella takes a dive into the past to show us how deep these roots go. There's a long history of Asians in the United States starting in 1587. Yes, that's 1587. Filipinos came as part of a Spanish crew that landed on the California coast to trade. By 1763, Manila men established a settlement on the outskirts of New Orleans. And in the 1830s, Asian immigrants came to Hawaii as laborers on plantations. The first major wave of Asians to the continental United States were mostly Chinese during the California gold rush in the 1850s. They headed out to Oregon, Idaho, and Washington to mine and work the railroads and other jobs. In fact, there was a time that 30% of Idaho's population was Chinese. That percentage drastically declined as white settlers came to the area. Laws were enacted to exclude the Chinese, and there was increasing violence against the Chinese. One particularly horrific massacre happened along the banks of the Snake River between Idaho and Oregon, where 30 to 34 Chinese miners were murdered. Gregory Noakes wrote the book Massacred for Gold, the Chinese in Hell's Canyon. There were a group of Chinese, and they were mining gold in Hell's Canyon. There was a gang of horse thieves who were operating in northeastern Oregon. And so they observed the Chinese mining gold along this uh, rugged river, the Snake River. For various reasons, they decided to steal the gold and then kill the Chinese. 
And one of the puzzles as I approach this story, why did they kill the Chinese? Because they could easily have just taken their gold and nobody would, would have cared. The Snake River is in Hills Canyon, which is extremely remote even today, and there's very few people down in the canyon. There would have really been nobody to complain to except to go back to Lewiston, and probably nobody there would have cared because there weren't that many people who cared about the Chinese in that period. So the fact that they were uh, killed for me was uh, horrendous. In that time in history, can you explain what the perception was of all these Chinese workers in the late 1800s? I think they were pretty much seen as intruders. They didn't assimilate. Uh, Not that that would have done them a lot of good, but in that period, few learned English. They lived and were more or less forced to live by themselves in certain districts, usually the poor districts. So they lived apart. And, of course, the Caucasian community liked that. They wanted them to stay apart. So they were seen as intruders. I guess a word we would use today would be others, you know, people less than. So the fact that they were taking gold, one of the motives here of the whites who plotted to kill them in Hell's Canyon was, this is our gold. The Chinese have no right to take that gold. Mr. Noakes, how did this story of the Chinese massacre in Hell's Canyon change you? Well, it's opened my eyes. And of course, I'm a veteran journalist, but I did not realize the extent of the antipathy and the hatred that people here, I'll talk about here in Oregon and in the Northwest, toward minority populations. And the Chinese took the brunt of that. A better answer to your question might be, we need to know our history, not just the parts we like, you know, the pioneers coming out and the wagon trains and slate and, and establishing their farms. We need to know all the history, the prices paid by uh, minority populations, to, and their story needs to be told, too. Three men were brought to trial, but no one was convicted. Documents about this crime were found in an old safe hidden away, and that safe was rediscovered in the late 90s. Gregory Noakes was able to work with those documents to write his book. Later, he organized the Chinese Massacre Memorial Committee to put a monument at the site of the murders. On a map, it's called Chinese Massacre Cove, a name that the committee wanted in order to remind people of the story and the history of that area. There were other aggressive and violent acts around the Northwest. Five Chinese miners were murdered in Oral Grand in central Idaho in 1879. Those murders were blamed on the Shoshone tribe, who denied they were responsible. Yet that moment was used against the tribe and led to the Sheep Eater Indian War. Years later, white miners would claim other whites committed the murders. In Pierce, Idaho in 1885, vigilantes blamed a Chinese merchant for the murder of a white business owner. They ended up gathering five Chinese men and hanging them with a makeshift gallows. When the sheriff's posse caught up with the vigilantes, they saw a pole between the trees had broken but had been lashed to a center post, leading them to conclude that the Chinese must have been hanged twice before they finally died. But hatred of the Chinese wasn't just in rural areas. In Tacoma and Seattle, hundreds of Chinese were forced out by disgruntled whites. Yet not all Chinese were unwelcomed. There is the story of Polly Bemis, a Chinese woman smuggled into the United States in 1872 before the Chinese Exclusion Act, likely a concubine for a Chinese saloon owner in Warren, Idaho. Polly Bemis eventually was freed 
and made a life for herself. Dr. Priscilla Weggers wrote the book Polly Bemis, The Life and Times of an American Chinese Pioneer. Why was Polly welcomed by Euro-Americans and other Chinese not? Well, several reasons. I mean, she was acculturated. Some people would say assimilated, but we can't use assimilated for Asian Americans because, as you know, they're considered perpetual foreigners, even today. And so we can't use the term assimilation for someone that doesn't look like the majority population. However, we can say acculturation, which is picking up the culture of the majority population, which Polly definitely did. The clothing she wore, the vegetables and things that she grew, her interactions, which you learned English, So there were so few Chinese women in Idaho at that time, although there was a lot of prejudice against Chinese men because they were seen as taking jobs from people, from Euro-American people, um, Polly didn't have that stigma attached to her because she wasn't taking a job from a Euro-American man. And, you know, people would see her like as exotic in quotes, but she had novelty value. According to Dr. Weggers, there were Chinese in Bonners Ferry and Sandpoint in northern Idaho. Many owned laundries and other small businesses, and those who were quote-unquote successful were acculturated. Some today would say they fit the model minority myth. In Bonner's Ferry, this fellow named Sue Key, S-O-O-K-E-E, he made an effort to become acculturated. He could speak, read, and write English, and he was married in an English-speaking ceremony to a Chinese woman. His first child was baptized in the Methodist Episcopal Church, and he passed out cigars when his son was born. The ones who did succeed and stayed made an effort to acculturate themselves to Euro-American ways, and so they fitted in. But did they really fit in? Okay, I would be really careful with that interpretation. Just look up Ozawa versus the United States. That's Cornell Chang, professor of history at Rutgers University and author of Pacific Connections, The Making of the U.S.-Canadian Borderlands, winner of the Outstanding Book in History Award from the Association for Asian American Studies. A little bit later time, the court case takes place in 1921. But literally, his lawyer's argument is like, look at him. He's a model American. He has a BA from UC Berkeley. He, he and his family goes to church, a Christian church. He wears Western suit. He only has Caucasian friends. He speaks English. Like all of the evidence of acculturation, it's all there. And the nine justices unanimously reject the argument and say that he is not eligible for citizenship because science says he is not Caucasian, and therefore he is not white. And not being white, he is ineligible to citizenship. But if you look up that court case, that will give you the perfect counterexample to any argument about, you know, if you just, you know, dress the right way, speak the right way, act the right way, that you would be accepted. It's just simply not true. Dr. Chang does suggest that money and power played more of a role in acceptance. Now, will I buy the argument that there is a class dimension to some of this acceptance? Undoubtedly, sure. There were men like Chin Ji He who were part of the elite social circles in Seattle and the state of Washington, precisely because he was a wealthy merchant. It wasn't necessarily because he was acculturated. He was seen dressed in traditional Chinese garb, but he had power. He had power because... The other men needed his labor, 
they also needed the access that the heat could provide to the Chinese and Asian markets, for example. I would argue that there, of course, there was some sort of class dimension. I've heard of stories about, you know, some of these concubine women who were brought into these sort of Western frontier towns. And, you know, not all of them, some of them were accepted, but they were accepted because they were associated with wealthy, powerful, you know, Chinese immigrant merchants, uh, or in other cases, very powerful, wealthy white men. Yet even with money and power and acculturation, there is a perception of Asians being othered and told to go home. Where does this come from in the history of America? Dr. Chang says it's immigration policy and citizenship eligibility. The very benign comment, where are you from, has a kind of long history that I would say is tied to both popular sentiment that began in the mid-19th century, but really became cemented by law and public policy. So in the mid-19th century, there were outcries on the West Coast of the United States against Chinese laborers as being, quote-unquote, coolie laborers. They posed unfair labor competition to white laborers. Right? They lowered their wages, they took their jobs, and so forth. But it wouldn't be for another three decades where they would get exclusion. Corporate interests in particular, you know, for example, the railroad companies, really needed this labor. And they were just one among one group that needed labor, right? We have to remember that, that the West Coast at this point, you know, in the modern sense, underdeveloped. There was no infrastructure. Someone had to perform that labor. And the Chinese became an important source of that labor. And so these corporate interests fought back against effort exclusion. By the late 19th century, Western politicians, because they get representation, because they become states, are then able to really push for Chinese exclusion, and they pass it in 1882. And that law really enshrines this idea that the Chinese do not belong. And in fact, encourage vigilante actions. That exclusion of Chinese immigrants would later be fastened on to the Japanese, Koreans, South Asians, and so forth. So you had immigrant restriction as being one source of creating this notion of the Asian as the other who didn't belong. The other big piece was citizenship. The courts created this notion that Asians were aliens, ineligible to citizenship. The Chinese Exclusion Act ended in 1943. And here we are in 2021 with a huge uptick in anti-Asian violence and aggression. You can be fifth or sixth generation Asian American and told to go home. Dr. Chang believes these sentiments are always there because of our history and policies of exclusion laying dormant and activated when tensions rise, like during the pandemic. That story from NWPB's Sue Ann Ramella. In the past year, there have been more than 6,600 incidents of anti-Asian assaults That's a 164% increase over the same period last year in the United States. Many of these violent acts happen in metropolitan areas. But what about those Asians or those of Asian descent who live in the rural Northwest? Do they feel safe? What interactions do they experience? To talk about this, Sue Ann Ramella met with Esther Louie, former Whitworth Assistant Dean for Student Life and former WSU Assistant Director for Multicultural Counseling Services, 
and Jill Creighton, WSU Dean of Students and Associate Vice President, Campus Life. Thank you, ladies, for being here to discuss some personal things. Esther, I would like to start with you. You wrote an essay about something that happened to you in Winco. Can you tell us about that? Well, Winco is one of the larger uh, grocery stores in our area, and um, I was there one summer, uh, early summer, thinking, oh, we haven't had a barbecue, and I just kind of made a mad dash to the store. And while I'm going around my shopping cart, it wasn't particularly crowded, but uh, I came across an aisle that was a little more narrow. And so this other woman was approaching, and I was approaching, and I thought, oh, I'll just hold and I waved her past to, you know, come by me so that we wouldn't, you know, crash our carts. And as she came by me, she made this face at me. And as she walked by, she said, in America, we say, excuse me. She just looked angry. And I looked around. I was stunned. Was she really talking to me? But there's no one else in the aisle. It took me a moment to realize that she was speaking to me, even though I was the one who basically stepped aside and, you know, in a friendly gesture, beckoned her to come down the aisle. Yes, you mentioned you were stunned, and yet you are a professional in multicultural services. So what happened afterward? What did you feel like doing? Right. Yes, I have done a lot of training, a lot of facilitating, a lot of conflict management, but I did not have anything that I could think at the moment to say. And so it took me a little time, maybe a few seconds, who knows, it felt like forever. And I thought, and I had to process and I thought, wait a minute, by me not saying anything to her, basically, my silence allowed her to, you know, say those words to someone like myself. So it, it you know, that phrase, um, and I tied up my essay in America, we say, excuse me, and she obviously made an assumption because of the way I looked. I hadn't even spoken. I mostly waved at her. She didn't hear anything because I didn't say anything to her. Mm. Jill, speaking of assumptions, you are very visible on the Washington State University campus in your position. And also, as of Asian descent, you are surrounded by colleagues who don't all look like you. What what is that like when people look and assume that you are from another country? It's such a complex question because I kind of am and kind of am not. Uh, I'm what we would call a third culture kid. So uh, I am a Korean American adoptee, which means that I was born in South Korea, but I have no living memory of that experience. Uh, came to the United States at about age five months or so. Uh, the family um, that I am privileged to be a part of is almost entirely white identified, which is such a fascinating dynamic in itself from the culture that I was raised in to how I'm presented in society and how people perceive me. And those are very uh, different things. And so it's a, a fascinating way of being in which uh, on this campus, I do have hyper visibility. I do have, I do occupy a space in which I am almost always the only person who looks like me in any room I enter. In fact, uh, being here with the two of you is so, so delightful because uh, I could not tell you the last time I was sitting in a room with two other women that looked like me. Mm. Um, though, to be fair, it's been about 425 days since any of us <laughs> sat in a room with any other human beings. Really excited about being vaccinated and being able to do that. <laughs> 
But I, I would frame it as a hyper-visibility and a hyper-invisibility as a duality. And this is a, actually a theory that comes from a black queer feminist scholar. And unfortunately, her name is escaping me at the moment. Um, but when I read her theory, it really spoke to me because in Pullman and on this campus, I'm recognized first and foremost by being the dean of students. Um, and that is a position that comes with many privileges uh, in terms of being able to be a person that's trusted by others, a person who can make decisions that benefit the health and safety of others, and also for students uh, to be able to see themselves reflected in the administration is a really critical point of safety for a lot of folks. But when I go into the community, all of that goes away. Uh, and I become another person who is othered, uh, a person who is seen as never belonging, much like your story, as uh, Esther, you mentioned, um, or also a person who will be seen as perpetually foreign in a nation in which uh, we look like everything. Um, and so I've lived all over the United States. I've spent time in the Seattle metro area, in Denver. I lived in Brooklyn for a long time. I lived in Eugene, Oregon for a while. And this is certainly um, the place that I've lived with the least number, critical mass number of people that look like me. And it was jarring at first. Um, it felt unsafe, regardless of whether it was unsafe. The, the cultural center of the inland Northwest is very specific and quite frankly, a little passive aggressive and unwelcoming at times. Mm. Um, and so when I put all of those puzzle pieces together, I think the whole experience that I have here is almost two lives. It's my life as the Dean of Students, uh, my life as uh, you know an impactful administrator, or at least I hope an impactful administrator at WSU, and then walking into communities in which um, I'm seen as clearly not welcome or belonging. Was there a time you went to Lewiston that you could just go by yourself and feel okay about that? I'm glad you asked that question because much like your experience, Esther, in Winco, uh, right when COVID was starting, I was shopping by myself in Lewiston and Costco, and someone screamed at me, the coronavirus, she has the coronavirus. And I wasn't doing anything besides trying to pick out some apples or something like that. Um, and it was much like you, Esther, I had this really... A difficult moment in which I had to say, am I engaging in complicity if I say nothing, or self-preservation if I walk away? And that self-preservation piece is what kicked into me, and it took me probably an hour or two to even begin to process what had happened. And I had reached out to loved ones to, to help me understand, was that a microaggression that just happened, or was it not? Uh, I also have extensive experience in justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and, and just had this moment of, wow, that just happened to me again. Um, and so the other part of my story that is critical here is uh, I'm in a, uh, my personal relationship is with a white identified cisgender man who's over six feet tall. And so when I move through the world uh, next to him, there is a very clear sense of perception that changes how I'm interacted with. Oh, Jill, I'm glad you brought that up because for the three of us, I mean, just by our names, Jill Creighton. Sue Ann Ramella, and Esther Louie, your last name does come from your Chinese ancestors, but it looks like it could be a westernized name. Mm -hmm. I was wondering about this western white shield of names we have and how that may protect us or give us certain privilege. And, and if I may get a little personal, the three of us are with white men. And so in a way, it's another layer of protection what does that say about the state of the United States that we feel more secure because of these white shields? 
my partner is a, in computer science. And so what I will say is that it's a feature, not a bug of the United States. Um, that is something that is a reality of the structures of society that we've built. And it is so painful to me uh, to watch people adamantly deny that that is the context in which we exist. Because I believe by speaking truth to power in that space, that's how we start to move through things and move through challenges and address these intractable problems. But if we're not willing to acknowledge that this is the center through which the world is currently viewed in this place in this time, I don't understand how progress can be made meaningfully. Uh, because the, the frame that we work in now often is uh, those who deny the reality versus those who are facing the reality. Uh, and then in the middle, those who kind of look at uh, this bystander aspect of, of what it means to confront racism in America. And so for me, Creighton is not a married name. It is my name. That was my, my name that was given to me when I was adopted at five months old. Um, and so it is also who I am. Uh, my parents are Irish and Norwegian by descent. So if I were a biological product of them, I would look very different uh, than who I am today. So I, I get that protection in space when I'm with my parents and when I'm with my partner. And it's a privilege that I struggle with in terms of the tension of, of guilt that I know my friends and colleagues do not get all of the time. And so part of it is chosen and part of it is not. But all of it matters. Complex? Absolutely complex. Um, what a wonderful <laughs> question you pose, Sue Ann, which is very interesting because the irony is, you know, when you find a life partner or you think you found a life partner, um, I'm not sure how much of the identity factor is a is you know, on the surface of awareness. So finding someone who's accepting, someone who doesn't make me feel like an other, you know, is a, is a wonderful place to be. At the same time, my students used to love the story once, you know, they start to share about the challenges of who they dated, who they think they are in love with and all that. When I met my husband, my parents rejected him because he was white and he was older. So you know, during the times in the 60s, this was a fellow that looked like a long-haired hippie. So there was many reasons for rejection by my parents who were traditional, you know, um, new immigrants to the United States. So at the same time, although I may have had privilege by being with my husband, my parents rejected not only him, they rejected me. My father, what I would say, threw me out of the family because I crossed that you know, ethnic line and would not speak to me, which then, of course, my mother being, you know, faithful and loyal to my dad, chose, you know, to be with my dad in that, you know, um, ideal, and also rejected me. So for three years, you know, I was basically shunned and not mentioned in the family. Although, yes, you know, in the general public, it might be seen as a privilege. It was years of struggle and you know, really heartache uh, in, the f in our family. It has a good ending in that my parents eventually accepted me back into the family because my older sister also was engaged to be married to a white privileged person. And my dad said to me, well, if I'm going to do what I did to you, I'll have to do it to your sister and your brother's dating a Japanese woman, so I will have no children. I will have no heirs to the name. Hearing both of your stories, it's just reflecting on uh, the complexity of identity and how the world views us from the outside, but what's really going on inside, very much American inside. I think that the 
concept of being growing up bicultural, and I think the three of us, at least bicultural, if not multicultural, is something that's not spoken about and not shared necessarily in a you know friendly way or just even in the discussion. I mean, you. You know, we're beginning to see those conversations take place, uh, whether in research articles or you know, in the identity formation and development area. But, you know, I'm sure each of us did not have role models or others that we could see, whether the general public or social media or just in movies or anything. Uh, so it was very challenging. And most of it, I think, I know for myself, I kept to myself because I didn't think others would understand the, where I was coming from in terms of, you know, what I was grappling with, the East-West, you know, to put it quite simply, what part of me is more Western, and depending on our background, whether you had introduction by family members or others to your cultural heritage, whichever, you know, facet you claim. And so it makes it challenging because you don't know. And so I think we other ourselves, we feel different. We don't find people reacting or maybe expressing themselves in the way that we would like to be able to. And we almost, see, I feel that sometimes it's not acceptable. So when I think about this really interesting complex challenge, um, I also want to acknowledge that I grew up uh, part of my childhood also in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. So when I say that I'm a third culture kid, I, I truly mean that from a number of different perspectives. And we also need to acknowledge that the construction of race in America is different than the construction of race as it's seen globally. And I'm a very global person. Uh, I've had the privilege to work with teams all over Europe, parts of Africa, the Middle East, Australia, China. Um, and as I had uh, ability to spend time in all of those spaces, uh, the way that Americans are perceived is also fascinating to me. So I was traveling through the Philippines, doing some consulting work for a higher education organization there. And everyone would say, oh, where are you from? Um, which is the perpetual, horrifically demeaning question that we get in the United States. It doesn't have the same connotation abroad. And I would say, oh, I'm from the United States. And they would ask me, oh, are you, you look Chinese. You're not Chinese. And I would say, not, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> um, and so when I would repeat that I'm American, they would say, oh, you don't look American. And ah. that is such a fascinating interpretation of American culture because of what's exported out of our country. So when we talk about representation mattering, it is a global perspective on American identity. Um, I've not seen myself reflected in pop culture up until very recently. Yes. I've not seen uh, myself reflected in my profession in leadership positions. Mm -hmm. uh, I've not had the privilege of having a mentor who looks like me who has paved the way before. So I find myself kind of blazing my own trail often, even though I wish I didn't have to in a lot of cases. Really privileged here to work for a woman of color. Uh, she's a different identity, but has also navigated some similar spaces, but with different expectations put on her because of her identities too. We look at this interesting amalgamation of all of these factors, and ultimately it boils down to me, I wonder when Asian American identity will be accepted as American. So in order to have a conversation about Asian American experiences in the rural Northwest, it really does go back to our history as a country. And then from there, we can acknowledge the good and the bad in order to move forward. I don't think most Westernized people are comfortable being uncomfortable and facing 
what ancestors or even I, even my own father will say, I'm not the one who did that, as if that means he doesn't have to even think about it. So how do we increase these history lessons? You know, one of the ways when I was studying how do you get uh, people to change or move along the continuum of development about understanding of others, right? There's many models of, you know, identity development. And how do we come to accepting different ideas than what we were raised with? And I think about when I plan for trainings, uh, I start with the most low risk, right? Because like you're saying, a lot of the people, whether we know that that's their perception or not, whether they want to learn or not, if they're in the room, I'm going to assume that they want to learn something. And so I start with very low risk. Lowest risk is to offer readings. You know, there, there's many avenues. It's it's whether, how do we support and promote? I taught an Asian American film class when I was at Whitworth, and I initiated it because I love watching 70s film because that's where I learn, right? So some of the, the filmmakers have um, put out wonderful documentaries about historical aspects of our history. You know, sometimes it feels so daunting because the issue is so widespread and so divergent with various different perspectives by people who are interested, not interested, somewhat interested, all along the continuum, and how do we reach them, you know? And so it's easy to be, you know, not have hope, not have uh, excitement about, well, what could we do? Or for some of us, we've been in, in the work, in the field for so long that we are tired, and we take a break, and we have to sit out for a little while, however that may look. Mm. Um, when you were teaching these classes, you go with the with them. You talk about them and ask them their background, because let's be honest, all of us, unless you're indigenous, come from someplace else. Yes. How did, what did you ask them and how did you draw out information from them? You know, the simplest exercise, and I think Beverly Tatum has an essay about this, and she talked about how she wanted to teach multiculturalism. And she would ask the class, you know, bring something from home that represents your culture. Well, the ethnic students, you know, brought all sorts of wonderful items, uh, artifacts, and things that they could share. The dominant culture kids, the white students, were puzzled. They didn't know what to bring. It was just not in their thought process. So she said, well, that that did not work. It, it was inclusive of the students, the ethnic students, but the dominant culture students didn't understand. They felt othered. And so she came up with um, a very simple STEM phrase, and she would have them write just the beginning, it says, I am from, and then you finish it however you want. And she would give them a few minutes for the younger students. I've done it with adult groups. You give them a few more minutes, and then you call time. And you say, whatever you want to write, tell us what you're from. I am from. And they would fill out some of the most powerful sharing afterwards. And it was all you know, voluntary. You didn't have to share. But we learned, you know, I remember students said, I am from fry bread and turquoise and the mountains. The Hawaiian student said, my name means this. I am from my grandmother who gave me this name. And it was so powerful. I mean, seriously, three minutes. When I did the exercise, it was powerful for me. And I wrote, I'm from Golden Jade. So Chinese, right? <laughs> People said, I learned so much in your sharing of two minutes than I have for the last two years of working with you. Mm. There's something deeply personal when you're asked, tell me. Where are you from? And leave it wide open. 
And that this is different than when someone comes up to you cold and says, where are you from? No, really, where are you from? Yes, that's a very different space. And so, uh, Esther, what I'm appreciating about what you're saying now is that we're centering people's humanity first. We're starting with who are you as a human being? What are you bringing to the table? Which is not a privilege that people of color in America get. We are first seen as our gender and our race and our ability. Those are the things that I think people first acknowledge. And then they make assumptions about who we are from there. Mm -hmm. Rather than what story are you bringing to uh, this conversation today? What pain are you bringing? What joy are you bringing? Uh, What family experiences are you bringing? And, you know, what else happened in your day that is uh, helping you center your experience now? In your first format of saying, you know, gender and then ethnicity and ability, the thing is, if you don't jive with their perception of you, like what you were saying earlier, Jill, they didn't see you as American. They said, "Mm, no. And then they ask you again, no, really, where are you from? They correct you. Or what are you? (laughs) Yeah, they want you to (laughs) correct it. They want you to tell them what their perception of you is. You know, so Because it's so difficult when the dominant culture sees something that doesn't fit their view because they have never been challenged with an outside view of that. We're so insular, particularly in the rural Northwest. And then when somebody comes from them and they're Asian looking and terrible at math, <laughs> it's like you've blown their world apart. Yes. One of the first experiences I had at um, WSU was I, I walked into a room of um, very accomplished women, and I said, hi, I'm new here. I'm really excited to be here. And someone said, oh, you're new? Are you in math? Yeah. But I also want to acknowledge that in order for us to develop and learn, we also have to give grace sometimes when it is painful for us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a lesson that I continue to learn on an iterative basis, um, trying to figure out, you know, when when do I move through lines of educational conversations? Is the space available? Is that a space I ask to enter, uh, ask permission to enter or not? Is that a space where I engage in self-preservation? Uh, all of those things often cross my mind. What this really means when we when we come down to the point of the inland Asian American rural experience, us being othered is not always malicious, but it has the impact of that. Mm-hmm. So there's an intent versus impact, and the intent might have been to be welcoming. Um, you know, how can I connect you with others? But the impact is, oh, I understand I'm not seen as being belonging in certain spaces. Um, and that has to be confronted because if we if we continue to center the idea, well, if you automatically didn't accept me that I have no place for you, then we're also contributing to the challenge, right? That is a difficult thing to reconcile. Yeah, that's powerful, Jill. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be important for society to acknowledge that when you have a message that's repeated, the human brain takes that in and uses it, whether it's a falsehood or not. And then the last year and a half or more, there was a lot of blame based on China in particular. Mm -hmm. And then because a lot of the folk that I am with may not educate themselves on the differences between Asian communities, (laughs) everybody's Chinese. And so the blame is just spread. And that's why you have I think so many of these outbursts because they need a reason and an excuse and a scapegoat for all of their feelings and they see you and you look different enough that I'm going to give it to you. Well, both of you hit on something really important, which is the Asian and Asian American identity 
to majority America is seen as a monolith. Yes, yes. And that monolith component is so damaging, and we need to problematize that. Because, uh, you know, I often see statistics about wage gaps and educational attainment and Mm -hmm. family size and all of these other things. But did you know it looks so different for Hmong Americans than it does for very wealthy, you know, folks that are making billions and millions uh, in industry in China? Like, there's... There's so much stress that's put on the monolith of the identity, and there is colorism within Asian identity as well. Yes. Uh, That colorism exists in other communities, too, other black and brown communities, and that's not something we talk about well because there's a depth to how we approach the challenge, right? So we have some within identity things that we need to figure out. That intersectionality extends to ability and sexual orientation and religion and, and all of the other protected identities we think about, and it also extends within other communities of color. Mm-hmm. So we have to deal with ourselves, too. Mm-hmm. And then we also kind of look at, at the majority-dominant culture and go, okay, it's such a such a complex issue. It's hard to unpack in a dialogue of this size. And I would, quite frankly, really want to go dig into the scholarly literature a little more before, <laughs> uh, before going down that. But if we continue to identify Asian-American identity as a monolithic experience— the one-dimensional way that we will be viewed, I think also is how we get to the space of, you know, two elderly women at a bus stop being stabbed Mm. on their way home from wherever they happen to be that day, you know, just sitting waiting for the bus. When someone is faced with microaggression or just plain old aggression, what can allies do to assist? I think it depends on how well you know me. Again, I was alone in Costco that day, but if it was somebody who I would consider family or chosen family or a loved one, I would want them to ask, hey, what did you mean by that? Real simple question. If it's violence-based, I want you to call 911 or video record what's happening and and help us uh, document the situation so hopefully, you know, some justice can be brought if that's the situation. But mostly... I want especially our dominant culture allies to have that conversation that you do not want to have with that family member who you know it's going to be hardest to have that dialogue with. What would you say to those who are listening who have never really thought internally about their place in this society and what privileges they have? I mean, and they probably hate the word privilege. What would you say to them in order to encourage them to look within? They need to do their own work. I would encourage them to understand where they come from, uh, what brought them to this point, what were the attitudes, behaviors, values um, that, that they currently hold true and dear to their heart, and how did that form? Where did that come from? You know, why do you believe such and such? Why do you do this? How do you greet someone? How do you show someone you care, or how do you, or why do you not care for certain people? You know, all of those many simple questions. Where did it come from? You know, was it a mother? Was it a grandmother or a grandfather? Work ethic. How did you formulate that? But I would go back to what is your attitude, your behaviors, your beliefs? How does that affect not only you and how you've come to be? But how does that affect someone in your community who may not have the same ideas, the same attitudes, the same behaviors? 
And then you go from there. And as a good friend of mine, Michael Chin, said, tell me more. And hopefully we can find some common ground. And we can begin to share, not in an adversarial or a black-white, you know, all or none, um, that we can become both and with no judgment, which is hard to do. But it takes practice, doesn't it? Mm. I think we have some really great examples of real uh, dominant culture allyship happening uh, right now. And so I would I would ask folks who are starting out new to the process of self-examination to look for role models, look for people who are doing it well, uh, look for people who are speaking out and speaking up when it's helpful, practice speaking out and speaking up, and practice that in small spaces where it doesn't feel like you're engaging your fight and flight response in order to do so. But I also would say that allyship is earned and it's not something that you can place on yourself for identities that you don't hold. But it is something that can be attributed to you when you have done the work to help build spaces of inclusion. The process of starting anew is hard. There is a scholar who talks about, you know, when I look in the mirror, and, and this scholar is a white cisgender man. He says, when I look in the mirror, you know, all I see is a person. And I think for a lot of people of color, regardless of gender identity, ability status, or other marginalized identity, we first see our color often, or maybe our gender often. And so for folks in the dominant spaces, I would ask you uh, to interrogate those identities when you look in the mirror and, and really start there about who am I, uh, who are my relationships with. You know, there's, there's also research out there that shows that um, dominant culture, young people often don't have friends of color, but... Uh, People of color almost all have dominant culture friends. And, you know, what does that mean? How does that impact our social ways of being? Those are big, difficult, hard questions, and they're, quite frankly, easier to ignore than to interrogate. But in a society in which we are more ever connected, the exposure to other human beings, I think, is the way that we build empathy. And the key for all of this, for me, is really empathy. So if we're starting with a brand new process of saying, oh, I do hold identity, I would ask folks to take that from an empathic place and build from there. Thank you so much, ladies. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. NWPB's Sue Ann Ramella talking with Esther Louie, former Whitworth Assistant Dean for Student Life and former WSU Assistant Director for Multicultural Counseling Services, and Jill Creighton, WSU Dean of Students and Associate Vice President, Campus Life. This has been On Asian America, a collaboration between NWPB, KUOW, Spokane Public Radio, and Humanities Washington. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Speakers Forum, part three of the On Asian America series. To find this episode and the full series, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. You can also submit feedback and questions about this episode by emailing engage at kuow.org or leaving a voicemail at 206-221-1926. You can also text the word feedback to 206-926-9955. Tune in again soon.